Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're paying tribute to the best of us, the booksellers. I'm joined by Alice Slater, herself an ex-member of the Guild, whose debut novel, Death of a Bookseller, brings together plenty of my favourite things, and presumably your favourite things. Books, obviously. Bookshops, which are the closest thing to sanctified ground that I can think of. But also, obsession, murder, podcasting, and snails. Alright, I don't love snails, they're destroying my garden one leaf at a time, but they do make for interesting pets, as you'll hear. <laughs> as well as being a bookseller, Alice is also the co-host of the Lit podcast, What Page Are You On?, which, from looking at the recent episode list, may be something that you guys enjoy too, so yeah, go check it out. If you want more stuff from me, though, you can join up for Patreon and help support the show, as well as getting loads of bonus episodes... There's the brand new Hush Tone series, longer reviews of books recently featured on the show, and soon I'll be posting an exclusive chat about Mothman with none other than T. Kingfisher. So, something for everyone. Just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod and sign up. Now though, let's head to a tired bookshop at the end of a grimy London street. Don't ask for the shopkeeper's help. You really don't want to attract attention. Let's talk scared. Well, hi, Alice, and welcome to Talking Scared. How are you today? Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. Good, I'm good too, thank you. Well, thanks for making time to come on the show, because I imagine your life is a bit of a whirlwind right now from what I've seen. Are you all over the place? I am all over the place. I've been in Edinburgh this week. Actually, I started in Carlisle, then Edinburgh, then Manchester. Right now I'm in West Kirby, just outside of Liverpool, and I'm back to London tomorrow. So I've been all over the shop. Oh, so you're in the north with me then. That's a nice bit of solidarity for the day. I don't get to speak to northern (laughs) people in the north that much. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I'm actually delighted that your publisher reached out to me about the possibility of you coming on the show way back at the start of the year when I'd not heard of the book yet. Because I reckon... If we'd waited, you'd have been just too damn busy. Never too busy for talking scared. Behave. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The media training is working well there. (laughs) No, just I'm just a natural sycophant. I think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as tell you what, start start a horror podcast. It comes in handy. (laughs) So anyway, to frame all this with some context, you've got a debut novel out in the world. I do. I do. It's called Death of a Bookseller, and it's gone from what I can see, straight into all the bestseller charts, including, was it the Times bestseller charts that I saw this week? Sunday Times, straight in. Yeah, I mean, lots of, like, incredible reviews, too. Um, So, be honest. And you can be honest here, right? Because a lot of my listeners are writers. Is it a pinch-yourself moment, or did you have an inkling this would hit big? You you know, tell us the truth. No, I mean, the thing is, right, I feel like... I try, I don't think of myself as cynical, but I try and be realistic. I refuse to kind of imagine possibilities of how well the book could do. I was really just focused on making sure that I was doing the best I could in each, you know, each Mm -hmm. situation, each event, whatever. Um, So when my editor phoned me to say that the book had charted, I got, it was just really emotional. It was a really 
just joyful moment, <laughs> especially because, you know, it, it's because of the campaign, you know, like the whole team came together to create this thing that is now out in the world. It wasn't just me as the writer. And I'm just so happy for everyone who worked on it to get to share that moment. Well, it's it really is. A, sappy. No, not at all. I mean, it's it's probably quite nice to be nice at the start because we're going to go into some very dark places. Um, <laughs> but but to briefly talk about the campaign, and this will all make more sense when we talk about what the book's about. Um, it, obviously, it's called Death of a Bookseller, and I think it's really nice that you have featured certainly in my pre-release proof just all of this feedback from other individual booksellers. Rather, I mean, there is stuff there from. Katriona Ward, from Julia Armfield, from Eliza Clark, Will Dean, you know, but you've you've really put booksellers' opinion sort of front and foremost. Yeah, um, yeah. That just seems a really nice thing to do. Well, I feel like, you know, booksellers are the best people to help books find their audiences. And obviously, you know, it's a book that features bookshops quite heavily and explores bookselling. So yeah, it was just a really smart, cool way to get from the very beginning to get booksellers excited about the book and they were and they've been amazing they've, they've been like tiktoks and there's loads of incredible content incredible windows so i just i feel very lucky and i feel very supported by my ex-colleagues like it's just really fucking cool well yeah because you were a bookseller and we'll get to all of that but I, I, as ever <laughs> yeah. let's introduce the book to begin with it's a really zeitgeisty novel it feels very current but can you introduce us to laura and roach and the world of death of a bookseller yeah, I can. So Death of a Bookseller is about two booksellers, um, the best that you could hope to meet and the worst. So Laura is a really perky, um, kind of popular person. She's very personable. She loves her job. She's very fashionable. Um, she has this very shiny, happy veneer. Roach, on the other hand, is the complete opposite. She's a bit of a weirdo. She loves her horror movies. She loves her rock music and she is obsessed with true crime. When she realizes that Laura's happy veneer is perhaps concealing a dark past, she becomes absolutely obsessed with finding out what Laura's story is with pretty creepy consequences. Yeah, pretty creepy consequences. <laughs> Slow burning creepy consequences, but but creepy nonetheless. Uh, right, so to jump straight in from the off, just to say... I really, really enjoyed and admired this book. Like I said to you off air, read it in like 48 hours. Thank you, man. They just, that means the world, honestly. <laughs> it's so, so exciting to hear. <laughs> well, it's compulsive because it's the way you frame it. You've got alternative chapters from Roach and from Laura. It just kind of drags you through the book. You want to always want to get back to the chapter you've just left. So it's each step kind of falls into the next. It's, it's really well done. But I'm completely unsure if I've read it correctly. And this is mm. perhaps the most uncertain I've been about a book since I spoke to Carmen Maria Machado about In the Dream House, <laughs> which I was very unsure about. But that, that should give you some sense of my trepidation today. Um, okay, okay, let's get into it. Well, because, right, what I'm unsure about, and normally I start with like a little question and build up to a grander theme, but I'm going to do the reverse this week, right? I'm unsure about what I'm supposed to take from what your book has to say. That's a convoluted question um, about <laughs> true crime. Cool. Yeah. Now, I've got to admit, I'm someone who has more than a passing knowledge of serial killers. I've been known to trawl the darker corners of Wikipedia. Um, how about you? On a scale of Roach to Laura in their interest in true crime, where do you fall? So when I started the book... 
which I began writing it in earnest in like 2019. I was mm-hmm. probably leaning, well, I was definitely leaning quite hard Roach. Maybe not to quite the degree of discomfort <laughs> that Roach gives yeah. others, but in terms of true crime, pretty hard Roach. By the time I finished the book, however, um, I, I ended up, I, I kind of overdosed on true crime a bit. You know, I had to do so much research. I spent so much time reading just some of the most depraved and frightening stories that, you know, have narratives, I should say, that exist. Um, And it really did me badly. I felt really paranoid all the time. Um, I felt unsafe in my home. Late at night, every single sound in my house, and there were a lot of sounds because I live in East London, so there's mice in almost every house I've ever lived in. All these little sounds in the night, I was convinced it was Richard Ramirez outside my home. I, it did me really badly. So by the time I finished it, I was actually leaning probably more towards Laura. But that's not um, to say that I won't end up eventually maybe moving back towards the roach in me. Okay. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And it's funny you say Richard Ramirez because he's the only one who actually frightens me in in concept just because it awful is. Yeah. Presumably, that changed the writing of the book because the book is about kind of two competing opinions on true crime i suppose yeah and if you went in with one and came out with another does that mean that the book changed in the process of you writing it no i don't think it did actually i don't think it did because kind of one of the real inspirations for the true crime element of the narrative was my own conflicting feelings about true crime um so i never really set out in writing death of a bookseller to present one fully formed idea um, I was really exploring the subject matter for myself. Um, it definitely isn't a thesis, you know, like there isn't, um, a mor- it's not a morality play. There's no instructional element to it. So I feel like, you know, if as a reader you feel um, that the book was telling you, did, like, you know, but that, that true crime is by default exploitative, then that's definitely was not my intention because there are multiple viewpoints as well. There isn't just Roaches and Laura's in regards to true crime. The characters do have conversations about it. So I hope, I don't know, I hope that, all I really hope is that it, it gets people thinking about what they consume and how they consume it and um, the ethics behind the individual books, podcasts, programs, uh, movies, et cetera. Um, that's all I was really aiming for is to just start a conversation, definitely not trying to add a full stop on the end if that makes sense. Completely. And it certainly worked on me. Um, it got me, because I'm an avid consumer of sort of macabre stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm more into kind of monsters and mysteries and like, oh, what was that in the woods that we just saw rather than true crime. Yeah. But but the two, particularly on podcasts, the two often overlap, uh, sort of a supernatural frisk on to, to the, the more extreme true crime, I suppose. Um, I do dip more than a toe into that world. And I often think about it like somewhat shamefaced I suppose in terms of the interest being on the killer you know and being on this these baroque kind of like rogues gallery of American icons which is a weird way to think about these losers essentially um but I hadn't given enough thought I suppose to whether it is inherently misogynistic or I suppose inherently misanthropic now that's not to damn it but do you think there is an argument that it could be seen that way? Oh, 
I mean, and I think like we do have to think about which stories end up becoming infamous, which stories become told over and over again and which stories are less, to use an awful word, but marketable. Mm. And we have to think about how that shapes our idea of who is the most vulnerable in society as well. And I think that's something that in thinking about the ethics of of the genre, that's something that kind of doesn't sit quite right with me. But then I don't really know what the, I don't really know what my desired outcome would be with that. You know, like, I think we focus very much on white women as victim and white pretty women, white young women. Um, I think it, 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 it has the potential of giving us a skewed idea of how vulnerable, of who is more vulnerable, in fact, to murder. Who is more vulnerable um, if they are homeless or um, who, if they're living in poverty, you know, these people who are less likely to be of greater concern to the police if they go missing. And that kind of worries me. It worries me um, about how we perceive our own safety and whether or not that's affecting our politics. In, I mean, yeah, the phrase I've heard in relation to that, that I think is one of the most sickening phrases is the lesser dead um, yeah. to, to denote sex workers and often yeah. women of colour. And, you know, in, in, in Canada, for example, like the Highway of Tears, where the First Nations women are going missing at an alarming rate and just no one is even trying to solve these crimes. I mean, it's pretty horrendous on top of the fact that people have lost their lives, you know. Well, I think it's also like it's thinking about the ways in which true crime can be um powerful that you know true crime can raise awareness it can put um by raising awareness that can put pressure on um police forces to start investigating things properly or moving investigations forward um so i think there is you know like the i'll be gone in the dark of it all you know like there is this kind of uh, element that has a greater value i guess rather than just thinking of it as entertainment have you come across a book called savage appetites by uh, rachel monroe no, I haven't. No, no. I have. Tell me more. So that's one that I really recommend if you're interested in why people consume true crime. Okay. Um, and it has each chapter, there's four chapters, and it sort of describes true crime consumers as um, empathizing with killer, victim, jury, and detective. And it's really interesting thinking about like the detective strand, you know, these narratives that are actually set on trying to seek justice. But we're not seeing, you know, we're maybe not seeing as many of those compared to the your, your Netflix Jeffrey Dahmer shows. Give me the name of that again. Savage. Savage Appetites by Rachel Monroe. Right, I'll put it in the show notes. The one I will throw back, which I'm sure you've read, but listeners may have not, um, is Haley Rubenhold's The Five. Yes, the Jack the Ripper. Um, yeah. Yes. But puts the it's basically biographies of the victims rather than the killer. Um, and that's like a, a nice corrective to some of the things that I think we're possibly talking about here. Um, yeah, it creates an interesting social history that kind of looks at how these women, the kind of quote unquote canonical victims of Jack mm. the Ripper, ended up being in the wrong place at the wrong time and, you know, met their untimely deaths. It's a really interesting book, but also it did start a really interesting conversation, didn't it? Well, it's the hate she got that, that blew my mind. Like she's often... Oh, cause... <laughs> Ripperologists, man. <laughs> yeah, but it's just the most bizarre thing. Is because it's like we all we all kind of ignore when we listen to true crime and consume it. We all we all kind of ignore the fact that we are essentially treating the worst human beings in history as sort of sexy antiheroes. You know, we we kind of put that under the pillow and just ignore that horrible fact. But then you get contemporary men going onto Twitter to criticize a woman for not giving enough adulation to jack the ripper you're like 
oh, something's gone badly wrong in our culture here. It's, it is a bizarre landscape, isn't it? I mean, I find the whole ripperology, the fact they even have a special name mm. is like completely unhinged. But oh, yeah, very a very strange situation that she ended up in. Yeah, you said about starting a conversation. The thing, the, the very kind of simple concept you gave across, but it made me completely rethink some things, is when you talk about the problematic variety within true crime. There are these great conversations about, as your characters frame it, the politics of shelving and where you put things. And I love that for a start because it's kind of inside of baseball. And I just thought, I really enjoy that kind of industry talk. <laughs> yeah. Laura, who has a very particular reason to be averse to true crime. At one point, she points out the absurdity and horror of, quote, picturing my pain for sale next to serial killer colouring books and murder trivia. And that really got me thinking about, for a start, what we even call true crime and, and how we there are different ways of dealing with these horrible histories. Well, that's the paradox of Laura as well, though, isn't it? Because actually, in the book... Um, she reads true crime as well. She's mm. She reads The Red Parts by Maggie Nelson, but she also reads more lurid true crime to create poetry um, based upon it. So she actually does consume it as well. She's just coming from such a radically different place that she doesn't recognise perhaps that that is something that she does have in common with Roach, whether or not, she whether she likes it or not, like she is still a consumer. Yeah, I'm going to get to Laura. I've got a few questions okay, to ask we'll first, because I want, I want to really <laughs> sure. talk about Laura and Roach, because they're fascinating <laughs> cool, okay. creatures. Um, one thing that occurred to me that I thought I'd ask you, how does all of this, in your, in your mind, right, how does this questionable debate around true crime compare to horror fiction? Because we horror fans, right, are no stranger to being condemned as sort of morbid freaks at all you know why did you read that stuff you know um it sounds like a simple question but do you think there is a difference do you think there is more to be sort of i don't know deduced from someone's reading of true crime as opposed to someone's reading of fictional crime or fictional horrors Ooh, i mean that's an interesting question i feel like i guess ultimately the nature of fiction is that it can be a great vehicle to kind of consider things like fear, empathy, um, politics, you know, um, that kind of thing. But I guess it is at its core fictional. Like it's not about real people. It's not about real pain. Even if the writer uses their own experiences to inform their work, like they are kind of, they're, they're, they're steering the ship, you know, they're in control mm. of that. Um, I guess that's the very nature of true crime is that it's true. So it's always going to, it's always going to land differently. It's always going to, um, be more polarizing. Yeah, it is. And I, I get that the writer has a different role in that because, you know, the writer of true crime is assembling and and telling someone else's story, hopefully, if they've got any integrity about them, within the bounds of truth. Whereas fiction is, you know, make up the nastiest shit you can think of. But I'm I'm always interested in this thing about the reader's perspective because are we supposed to... I don't expect you to have the answers to these questions, by the way. It's just amusing. Sure, yeah, no, we're just, we're just vibing. Are, are we supposed to have a different reaction to something because it's true? Or are we, you know, free to see it all in a way as, as narrative and, and story? I just... It, that that reader-response thing has always interested me when it comes to, like, the more horrible aspects of life. 
Yeah, I mean, I suppose, it, you know, this kind of reminds me of, it reminds me of the fact that I can, I can watch really gory um, movies. Mm-hmm. Like, I have quite a strong sum, stomach for violence on screen, but I cannot watch, like, uh, vid- footage of a nose job, for example. Right. Like, footage of a real operation will cut through me, and it's a pardon the pun, in a really different way. And I wonder if there's something in that, that, like, in reading of horror, there is a kind of safe comfort blanket of knowing that it's not real. So you can almost indulge in being frightened, but then when you're finished, you can close the book, turn off the movie, switch back on the lights and kind of move on from it. Whereas perhaps the nature of true crime is that you don't have that luxury of saying, well, it was just a story. There is a, there's a gendered thing in this as well, isn't there? Because the vast majority of victims who are portrayed or recorded in true crime are female because of the nature of this kind of crime. Um, and as a man... I find it really interesting that I rarely get scared by the concept of the real or the concept of like realistic violence happening to me. Uh, you know, someone coming in my house and stuff like that. I only get scared thinking about what if my wife was in the house. Uh, whereas I, it's, a, it's an on-running joke of this, that if I hear a noise in the night, I think it's a ghost. My wife thinks it's a burglar, you know? Um, yeah. But I, I wonder if men, to some degree, have a different fear response to true crime than women. Well, this is interesting because this links back to something I was saying at the beginning of this episode in that I think true crime can skew our idea of the realities of who's vulnerable. Because as a man, you're more likely to be murdered by a stranger in the street than I am as a woman. I'm more likely to be murdered by someone I know in my own home. So actually in that scenario with you and your wife, that bump in the night, she's more likely to be in danger from you. Now, obviously not literally, not in your relationship, but statistically, that's the truth of it. But true crime narratives are not so interested in the deaths of men. I think perhaps because the primary consumers of true crime are women. I don't know, though. I don't know about that. I'm not sure um, if how much kind of research has actually been done into, into that kind of thing. But, yes, yeah, certainly um, it's something that one of the characters brings up in the book and he is shot down immediately. But um, Eli, one of the booksellers, says, oh, actually, you'll find that more men are murdered in the UK than women each year. But those narratives don't sell. And you were saying, is it because that's why more women read true crime and stuff? I I personally think it's because true crime, in all its guises, really, because of market forces, has to focus on the lurid. Mm. The thing about the, the crimes that we all know, Bundy, um, you know, Gacy, all these, again, icons, it's a horrible word, they're, they're fundamentally sexual, aren't they? And we, as a readership, we kind of revel in the... The, the aberrant sexuality of these acts. And I think Ooh, that... Oh, do you, that, though? Interesting. Well, oh, see, sorry, I'm trying to, I'm not trying to imply that I am, you know. I'm not I'm not personally sitting here get, getting aroused by uh, the thought of Ed Gein making <laughs> love. No, sorry, that, my but... reaction, I did not mean to imply that. <laughs> no, it's I think fine. it's interesting to imagine, yeah, that is that something that is... Is that a key kind of a common denominator between the kind of... Uh, to use this yeah, again like we keep apologizing to use this commercial language but ultimately it is uh it is a commercial space but you know are these stories more sellable uh if they contain that kind of lurid sexual element which is to me is a very chilling like that's a very nauseating thing to think about well what, what makes me think that is the fact that you know the the most famous serial killer who ever killed men was dharma i would say mm. um and dharma did really kind of baroque things to his victims they were hugely sexual crimes and he had this kind of weird batman villain 
modus operandi on top of that we were trying to make sex zombies you know whereas you know as you say the the the, the countless male deaths just through pedestrian violence for one of a better term you know they don't they don't get added to the annals of true crime it's the stuff that's lurid and in the end comes back to sex it's just my opinion you know but i think mm, that's why street killers haven't taken off in the same way they're not quote unquote sexy enough you know it's just violent without the attached stuff i think it's also i, I think it's also the psychology you know like the the psychological journey that one must go through to become a serial killer I think mm. has a bit more to it it's got a bit more of a lure I think for a lot of readers I should say consumers because we're including podcasts and, and Netflix and things as well um I think you know what I mean like so thinking about stories like uh like Dharma that where does the story begin the story doesn't begin with Dharma walking into a bar the story begins much earlier than that and I do think that a lot of people who consume true crime are interested in picking apart the way that these people tick like what happened to them, what's happened to their psychology, why have they ended up going down one path instead of another? And I, I think there's, to a degree, I think spree killers um, certainly have this, there is still that question, like what has changed, what made them snap in that way? But I guess the really sad reality is that spree killers are far more common in the US mm. than, than serial killers. Serial killers are actually exceptionally rare and therefore by default, I think are a little bit more interesting. Yeah. Okay, I mean, I'm going to move on there because I, I think I've managed to navigate that without saying anything too problematic. I but know, I, it's quite stressful, isn't it? <laughs> just to reaffirm, I, I am not an, I know nothing about the politics or theory behind true crime. I'm just somebody who's read a book or two and listens to a lot of dark podcasts. So don't take my word as gospel, Jesus. <laughs> but to transition a little bit, are you a fan of horror? You said before that you can watch violence. Of the many, many titles mentioned in Death of a Bookseller, not a one is a horror novel, right? But you do start the first chapter off with a reference to The Exorcist. Are you a fan of the genre? Yeah, I'm a big horror movie fan. Okay. Um, in, yeah, but in terms of fiction, the problem that I have is that I really struggle to keep up with lots of action scenes in fiction. Right. Um, so, for example, have you read Joe Hill? heart-shaped box yeah yeah so great book really atmospheric I loved the deep south so there was so much in that that I loved but I really start to struggle when we have the long action sequences at the end you know like the big kind of crescendo of action in on screen I can keep track of that fine on the on the page I struggle a little bit to follow them <laughs> so I find my horror reading for that reason tends to be probably lacking a little bit I feel like when I find the right kind of horror novel, I will absolutely lap it up. But I struggle a little bit to find the right ones. I probably need to get better at asking for recommendations. Well, I mean, have I got the podcast for you? You know, I know, just... right? <laughs> Your book is relatively free of action, I would say. I hope that's not offensive, you know. No, um, not at all. It's definitely not. It's definitely quite uh, a slow burn, I think, was the, a phrase that gets used quite often. Well, I'd call it a character study. Love that, yeah. I, I think it, 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 it's very much about these people's the minutiae of their lives in a way, you know. Um, and I, I was interested in that because when you think about thrillers these days and 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 this this kind of book, I suppose, often you've got. I think a lot. I personally think a lot of it's relatively formulaic, you know. And and yours really books all of those trends. It's just about these people's inner lives. Thank you. 
is, is that because you didn't want to write action? Is that like an aversion to that kind of writing? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's not just that I didn't want to, is that I think it's something that I can't do. I don't think I would do very well if I tried um, for the same reason that I don't enjoy reading it. Um, I definitely wanted to create atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And I think those are the kinds of, um, when I do read horror, I read a lot of thrillers as well. I read a lot of dark fiction. I think that maybe maybe I'm being too kind of genre specific when I say horror. I love anything morbid, whether it's literary, thriller, crime, or supernatural um, narrative. But atmosphere is what I really love. And I love um, thinking about different ways in which people can be can be forced to interact with one another. And, you know, setting the book in a bookshop really creates lots of opportunities for that. I love the kind of creating that claustrophobic sense of not being able to escape the one person that you really, really don't want to be spending any time with. Well, let's talk about bookshops and book selling, right? Because as I've explained in the intro, you were a bookseller for years across numerous branches of, was it Waterstones? It was, yeah, six years, about 20 branches. For American listeners and overseas listeners, Waterstones is kind of like our borders, but it's better. It's quite classy. Um, <laughs> so when you were book selling, what were your, <laughs> what were the direct experiences, I suppose, that inspired this story? Was it people who bought true crime? Was it something else? Where did this story come from? Yeah, so I mean, so I left book selling in 2017 and I started writing the novel in earnest in 2019. So I did have a, a little bit of a gap. And that's, I think, where the true crime element actually came in. Um, the character Roach, though, I came up with in about 2016. So not so much her true crime loving element of her, but thinking just about the kind of antithesis of what we think of when we think of a bookseller. I think, you know, when bookshops appear in fiction, they're often very quaint places. They're seen as places of safety, of comfort, of like intellectual thought. They're kind of considered, um, you know, quite like like beautiful spaces to exist Mm -hmm. in. And I, I, I like thinking about, you know, the grubbier side of life, I guess. And like, you know, the things that you see behind the scenes, if you work in, in retail, <laughs> it's a very different, it's a very different, right? And also I think working for a chain as well is something that you just don't really necessarily see very often in fiction. Um, and I thought it'd be, I just thought it'd be fun to explore, but it took me a long time to then actually find the true crime narrative, which forms the plot. It was very much really just me thinking about book selling and vibes for quite a long time. <laughs> Uh, I mean, you make it clear, actually, that, that book selling is a, a real skill, that it's that it's actually very different to other kinds of retail. Hmm. I was. That's the thing. I feel like that's what that's what they want us to think, man. That's what they want us to think. Um, and book selling is a skill. I think a good bookseller, someone like the character Laura, who really cares about helping books find their readers, that is a skill. But there's also so much more to retail than just knowing your product. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that I guess would surprise a lot of people about the landscape of bookselling is you'll find lots of booksellers who don't actually read that much, aren't that bothered about the publishing industry, but they're really good at visual merchandising or they're really good at um, creating incredible like, you know, window displays or doing exciting things on the shop floor. Or they're really good at ops. They're really good at, like, the kind of technical side of, of um, you know, the supply chain. So, you know, it, it's quite a broad church, but we only ever really think about the Lauras. But you need you need lots of different cogs to keep the machine turning, I guess. Mm. I do love your little gallery of characters in, in the <laughs> bookshop. I could see it as, like, a, 
you know, a, a prestige BBC drama. I could really, I was casting, oh, casting people in my head. It's got that feel of like, there's enough to make each of these characters quite rounded and you know who they are. Like Eli, for example, this sort of Laura's best pal and somewhat thwarted love interest in the shop. Like, he's a really rounded character in a way that you didn't need to do that for this story to function. But it does feel like you're spending time in, as I say, like the mundanity of people's lives, but you make it interesting. Thank you. I I really like, um, I really admire writers who create very three-dimensional characters, even from like bit characters. So that's really, I was trying to emulate, like, have you read um, Caroline Kepnes, you? I haven't, no, I really should. it's, It's one of those things where it just... When it, when it hit Netflix, I was just like, oh, I'm not interested in this. But now I'm hearing more and more good things about it. Oh, I tell you what, man. Read the books. The yeah. Netflix show's great as well, but the um, every single character in, in the, particularly the first one, um, every single character feels so real. And I was like, that is exactly what I want to do with my work. I want every character to feel like they're, they, that they jump off the page, that they're people that you could, you could meet in the real world. And it was quite challenging. It took me a long time to like figure out how to do that without just kind of creating, you know, walking cliches. Um, so I really appreciate that. Thank uh-huh. you. Eli just felt like the, like, it felt like seeing the worst parts of myself on the page because he's, <laughs> oh, he's, no, a, he's, really? <laughs> he's a well-meaning bloke, but Christ, he's pretentious. He's got like, you know, a guitar he never plays. And, and the bit when he makes Laura sit down and, like, makes her actively listen to the dark side of the moon. Like, <laughs> if, if you spoke to my wife, she'd just roll her eyes. Because I do that all the time. I'm like, no, you got to... We're going to see Bruce Springsteen in, in June, right? My wife yeah. hates Bruce Springsteen. I'm obsessed by him. And we had a, a kind of car ride recently where I was like, right, you've got to listen to this entire 17-minute version of Jungle Land. And then I was explaining the references. I love that. <laughs> Yeah, Eli is kind of me on a, I suppose, a slightly worse day. See, that's the unfortunately, Eli is also me. (laughs) I (laughs) love Dark Side of the Moon so much that whenever it comes on, I'm like to my husband, I'm like, okay, no, 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 you can't, you can't skip it. You have to listen to the whole album in full. You can't listen to Out of Order. Like, I'm completely obsessed, and I'll bring out all of my trivia every time, even though he's heard it all before. I think you know, there's maybe perhaps a little bit of Eli in all of us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> God, he's a pain, though. Oh, <laughs> right. Let's talk in a bit more depth right, about these main two characters, Laura and Roach. I can't recall ever reading a novel ever in which I literally didn't know who the protagonist or the antagonist was, even who it <laughs> even was, for about 150 pages. Now, then I started thinking, is that even the right way to conceive of these characters as opposites as light and dark as goodies and baddies I mean I definitely think of them as day and night for sure um you must have read Gone Girl though or watched the movie I I have right yeah so that right go on that energy is what I was thinking about Mm. I loved the fact with Gone Girl that you keep changing your mind you're like who do I actually think is 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 the baddie here and actually they're both kind of shitty people (laughs) That's kind of what I was going for. Um, well, I found it really interesting, though, how polarizing the characters are. I mean, I don't really believe in absolute good and absolute evil. I think they both have um, good attributes and bad attributes. It's really surprising me, though, like how many people just hate Laura. <laughs> like, and she is quite annoying. She is. But I think she's all right. Right. I mean, she might steal your boyfriend, but... <laughs> 
Yeah. You know, I, t- I tell you who I kept thinking of as, as Laura. Have you seen the, the TV show Fresh Meat? No, I haven't. Wow, there's a... Sorry, this is getting quite, quite niche now. My overseas listeners, apologies. There's a British sitcom called Fresh Meat about students. There's a character in it called Oregon, who is this very try-hard English student. And I just kept thinking of Laura. <laughs> I kept thinking of her with Laura. Um, <laughs> I'll have to watch it. It's great, yeah. Um, sorry, I'm talking a lot on this episode. I don't wish to talk over you. I've got a lot to say, it seems, about all of these subjects. No, please. I love it. Two things. First of all, Gone Girl. Right, This is a bold thing to say. In terms of what this thing about balancing the light and dark, I think your book is better than Gone Girl. Oh my God, how do I even react to that? (laughs) I don't know what to say. (laughs) I wasn't sure for so long, whereas maybe it's a flaw in me, but when I read Gone Girl, Amy was my home girl throughout the entire thing. I'm just like, Amy is the the hero here. I never had any (laughs) doubt. Even with certain certain revelations, I'm just like, I'm just rooting for her consistently. That was my take on... I think Gone Girl hit me wrong. Maybe I, I didn't see the, I didn't see the balance. <laughs> now nah, there's there's no wrong way to interact with fiction, in my opinion. It's all good. It's all good as long as it's eliciting some kind of response. Then I think that you're imbibing it in the correct way. You know. Okay. Well, let me test that by, let me give you a brief run through how the journey I went on with your characters. So that's okay, right? <laughs> Let's hear it. Um, I started out thinking that Laura was way too good to be true, right? That she was hiding something or she was a fake or there was some kind of like even darker secret than the one she has, right? And I I thought, oh, Mm -hmm. well, clearly what what we've got here is that Roach is this kind of misunderstood hero of the piece because the fact that she likes dark things and she's so morbid is going to be actually a bit of a rug pull or she's going to be the nice person, right? And then slowly I started to realise that Laura is, all right, perhaps a little pretentious, but she's genuine. And that Roach is very, very troubling. Yeah. And at that point, I was about two-thirds the way through. And I won't say where it goes from there. (laughs) (laughs) Was that indecision on the reader's part something you were actively trying to evoke? Or have I just got these characters in a different way than you? No, no, that's 100% it. I feel like um, Laura begins the book as the best version of herself. Like she has her customer service veneer on 24 seven. She's got really strong walls built to protect herself um, from her own traumatic past. And as the book progresses, the cracks start to show Um, the situation that she's in. She starts drinking more heavily. She starts behaving more erratically. And by kind of that, that two thirds of the way through point towards the end, I think she's kind of transformed into the worst version of herself. Whereas Roach, I think, begins the book in many ways as the worst version of herself. She's very lonely, insular. She's very unhappy. Actually, by the end of the book, this isn't a spoiler, but, you know, the the Christmas party scene, Roach is fitting in for the first time ever. Like, she is chatting with her colleagues. She is almost, she's almost blossomed into someone that perhaps could have ended up on a slightly different path. Um, And I think also with Laura, you know, traumatized people are not necessarily always the perfect victim, you know? And I felt like it was important to me to show her as this three-dimensional person who's deeply flawed because she hasn't processed the pain that she's experienced yet. So yeah, it's definitely intentional to try and create these polarizing characters that have both lightness and darkness within them, even though actually in the terms of the narrative, perhaps one is more representative of light and the other is more representative of darkness. Okay. 
I'm not going to ask you for names, right? Okay. <laughs> um, this is a bit of a trite question, but it, it bears asking in this point, in, in, the, in relation to this book in particular. Um, are they based on real people? Any more than we, you know, everyone character is in some way based on people. Yeah, no, not at all. Not at all. They're both completely made up. Right. I don't know if that's boring. I don't know if you hope hope for some kind of allusion to some creepy roach in my past. But yeah, no, completely made up. No, it's a bit more reassuring than anything, to be honest, because (laughs) if there was a roach, it's like she needs to be sacked and and quickly. (laughs) Laura, when we first meet her... The first chapter is just her itemizing her morning routine in in quite explicit detail. You know, it uses this cream, uses this soap, has this for breakfast, right? Now, maybe it's I was because I was in a serial killer headspace, but all I could yeah. think of was Patrick Bateman. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of Ameri- It's an American Psycho moment. It is all about that everything that she is doing, she's explaining it, and it is all external, right? It's all about presenting the perfect package to the world. Is it fair to suggest that Laura's lifestyle is as much of a pose as Roach's? She's very Instagram, isn't she? All avocado and toast and cocktails in mason jars and things like that. But it utterly belies this chaos inside her. Is she as dishonest or or even less honest, I suppose, than you could say that Roach is? Oh, yeah. No, 100%. I think that... What Roach recognises in Laura immediately is her fakeness. I think Roach is actually very real. You know, Roach doesn't conceal much about her um, behaviours, her life, uh, her her hobbies, her her beliefs, whatever. Like Roach, I think, is quite black and white. She only gets sneaky when she meets Laura. Whereas mm. Laura, from the very get-go, is just is kind of full of shit. I'm, I'm still getting the sense you've got of sort of a sympathy or an empathy for Roach that you still think of oh, as 100%. Some... 100%. I think Roach is very young and very lonely. I think that happy people don't become weirdly obsessed with others. Um, I think also Roach hasn't ever really had the space in her life or the interest from others, her mother included. Mm. Like she grows up in a pub. She's quite neglected in many ways. She's never really had the interest from others to make her feel like an interesting person which is why she's very like not other girls, you know, she has loads of internalized misogyny. She, the way that she consumes true crime, she feels is very different to all these basic bitches mm. who got into it through my favorite murder or whatever. Um, and that, you know, that is all her creating um, a wall up so that when she is inevitably rejected by society, that she feels like she was in control of that rejection by intentionally being quite repulsive. Um, so I have a lot of empathy for her. I do. Um, and also that's why she has a pet snail. <laughs> like I get asked quite a lot, why is there a snail all over this book? And I wanted to give Roach something that wasn't um, in that realm of true crime, horror movies, rock music, which I feel like are all kind of interconnected um, hobbies, right? I wanted to give her something that was completely different. And, you know, a snail is still quite a weird pet to have, but they're quite mm-hmm. cute. They're quite um, wholesome in many ways, but they're also an invasive species. Giant African land snails are an invasive species in the UK. And I think in the US as well. I don't think they're, I don't think you're legally allowed to have them as pets in America. I may be wrong. Um, but I felt like that was quite fitting. You know, like the, the one pet that she has is actually something that you have to keep a very close eye on. Otherwise, <laughs> it can end up in places it shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's a kind of nice symbolic mirroring with the slugs that keep finding their way into, into uh, Laura's house as well. 
Yes, and I will say the slugs are real. They're based on real slugs I have experienced in my horrible East London flat. So that's the one character in the book that's based on someone real, the fucking slugs. (laughs) Yeah, my my mates had that in when we went to... We were at Durham Uni, which made me laugh, by the way, when you when, when I found out that Laura <laughs> went to Durham Uni. Laura is such a Durham Uni girl, honestly. Like, you have nailed that. Uh, absolutely nailed it. <laughs> yeah, but my mate woke up one day covered in slugs because he was sleeping on the mats on the floor. Oh, no! All over him, yeah. That's a, that's a horror Oh, that happened, is the right? stuff of nightmares. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of uh, the slug, nothing gives me... Sorry, the snail. The snail, not a slug. Yeah. Nothing massages my pathetic ego like when I get a kind of in-joke in a book. Um, <laughs> and I, I love that you called it Bleep, because am I right in that? that? That's the name of the, the serial killer, Den- Dennis Nielsen's dog. Am I right about yes. that? Yes. Thank God. Yes, you are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, yes, um, fist pump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny that you should mention um, Bleep, actually, because you mentioned Cat Ward mm-hmm. um, at the beginning of the, this podcast. That she, you know, she very kindly blurbed the book for me, and um, she in the last house on Needless Street. In fact, I remember reading after I had created Bleep and named my sna- my snail Bleep. Um, the afterward of the last house on Needless Street, she talks about Dennis Nielsen's snail, um, Dennis Nielsen's dog, and how strangely humanizing uh. this—you know—the fact that he had this pet that he loved very dearly, um, how humanizing that was. And I was like, yeah, it's really interesting. It's a very strange thing to think of Dennis Nielsen's dog. I don't know. I feel like I could spend a lot of time thinking about that—that that little four-legged friend. It's weird. It is weird though, because often you think of these people as incapable of of like the kind of care it would require to have a pet. Yeah, it's a very like an oxymoron, mm. you know. But it's almost like that they have a greater connection with animals. They don't get rejected by animals the way that humans reject them, perhaps. Yeah, but so often we think of animals as attuned to evil and as serial killers as beginning with the tri you know the triangle where animal cruelty is one of them. Um, that is arson, yeah. bedwetting, and hurting animals and stuff. I think we often think of that relationship as like really, yeah, really awful, yeah. you know. Whereas when a serial killer has a dog, it seems to negate all of that or undermine all of that. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Yeah, although I think that trifecta of bedwetting, animal cruelty, and I can't remember what the is third it arson, one is I now. Think. I think it's arson. Oh, arson. Yeah, I feel like I remember reading that. That's been debunked. That they, that's not quite as reliable as right. an indicator of someone's potential violent nature as we once thought. Okay. Perhaps because of people like Bleep. Um, bleep. Yeah, he's a person. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> I meant to say people like Dennis Nielsen and his dog, but I've just got snails on the brain. Anyway. Yeah. So if we agree that, that Bleep, the snail, is somewhat of a redemptive thing for Roach, perhaps the most damning part of her character is that actually weirdly her indifference to books and her describing herself as a writer when all she really does is transcribe and collate and plagiarize as a bookseller did you see that as an especially villainous trait oh no absolutely not I feel like um people are complicated and the world is massive and you know what the books are just one part of it i think sometimes in the industry we can really overemphasize the value of books in a very alienating way now books are my life every you know i've been writing reading for my entire life they are the books are my passion but 
yeah, I feel like, you know, it's fine, <laughs> whatever. Like <laughs> some people really are passionate about cars or some people are really passionate about movies, whatever. It's all good. It's all good, man. Uh, well, quite, because Laura says something that really resonated with me, right? She mm. says that books as objects are not meaningful. It's the words that have power. Yeah. Now, personally, I have never understood the, the fascination with books as objects. You know, some examples aside, you know, there are some pieces of art, aren't there, that, you know, in book form. But I've got shelves full of broken spines and folded collars yeah. and coffee stain pages. It's the story that matters, and story is kind of ephemeral. No, that that is verbatim. Um, what Laura says is verbatim my feelings on the matter. I have so much reverence for the written word, but the object in which the words are printed, it's a mass-produced object. Do you know what I mean? Like, that, yeah. it, I find it very... Um, Almost a little bit frustrating, I guess, that the, the assumption is that someone who's really passionate about books will kind of fetishize and hold the physical item in reverence, even when it's, you know, a paperback, a Stephen King paperback, of which mm -hmm. there are millions of identical ones published. Yeah. Um, yeah, it kind of annoys me. I'm a real, I'm a page turning, a page folding, spine cracking, coffee stain. You know, I love it. I feel like that creates... Um, more connection to the book to me if it's been damaged or broken in in my specific way than if I kept it pristine. That, that's why I had such an issue with that. You know that article about um, came out in the garden a few months ago to a bit of a bit of controversy. I can't remember who wrote it now. The whole thing about is book ownership middle class? Oh yes, yeah. And I, I mean, it, I'll, I'll try and find it and put a link in the show notes, guys. It's worth it's worth reading. I think there's lots to be said. You can go either way. I think the hate the author got was ridiculous, but. End of the day, if you own a lot of books, you just own a lot of stuff. You know, you don't own the stories. You know, you could have you could have a Kindle with every every book you ever want to read on it, or you could have read every book and given it away. Yeah, exactly. Just owning pages and, and, and blocks of paper isn't in itself a badge of anything other than you've got a bigger house to put them in. <laughs> yeah, or more money to spend on them. Yeah. Um, yeah, I find, you know, I actually find that, I mean, that article was incredibly polarizing and my vibe with it was just like, God, who gives a fuck? I just, I could not care less about how many books other people own or how they treat their books. I find we would never have such uh oh, actually, you know, you know what? I was about to say something that then actually may not be true. I was about to say we would never have such a big debate over DVD ownership or record ownership. And I realized that actually those communities probably do have those conversations. I'm just not in them. Um, yeah, I just find it tedious. I just find it really boring. Like, mm. who cares? I'd rather talk about books, the actual books. That's what I'm interested in. I don't really care about how people store their books or whether or not they think it makes them smarter or more cool or whatever. Like, who cares, man? <laughs> that comment from Laura about books not being important, though, it illustrates, for me, <laughs> a key structural conceit in your book, right? Here we go. She says... Oh, that, hit me, yeah. Well, I mean, we're late into a conversation to bring up structural conceits, but fuck it, let's have it, right? Um, <laughs> she says all that about, you know, the, the, the object isn't meaningful at all, it's the words, right? In the very next chapter, Roach says that, quote, Laura was in love with the very pages, the ink, the actual glue. She cradled them like precious children. And what that showed to me it pulled back the veil on how this book works is that we have to understand how little laura and roach really understand each other yeah god that that's a really interesting really interesting thing to pull out 
But you're right, it shows, it also shows that Roach only sees the customer service side of Laura. So what mm. she's observing is how Laura sells books to customers. She's not observing the real Laura or how Laura really behaves in her own home. But it also throws up the whole unreliable narrator thing. Now, I have a lot of, well, not a lot, but several listeners who I know are very tired of unreliable narrators, but largely in this kind of postmodern way, you know, like, oh, aren't we yeah. clever? Like, your book doesn't do that. But your book, I think, looks much more at the genuine subjective kind of interiority of, of human experience. It's more about how, how we genuinely misperceive each other rather than being a narrative trick. Yeah. I sometimes feel like the term unreliable narrator gets used, kind of kind of gets bandied around incorrectly. Mm. Like for me, an unreliable narrator is a narrator that is intentionally misleading the reader. Um, whereas, you know, Roach and Laura, they're not mis they're not trying to misrepresent the other person. They're just showing their their genuine perspective. Um, which is not necessarily always right just like in real life like we never really know someone's true motivation you can never really get inside someone else's head everything is always through your own lens and I think that's just the nature of telling stories I guess like they always come from your perspective that actually may answer a particular question I have right because one of the puzzles in this book is that a lot of Laura's reaction and opinion of Roach we get in Roach's POV chapters rather than being told early on what Laura actually thinks of her. So could you read it as the antagonism that builds so early isn't actually there? It's more Roach's kind of low ego or the way that she misreads how much she thinks Laura hates her. And then obviously it becomes then a vicious circle where it reaffirms itself. Because I never got quite why Laura hates her so much at the start. Yeah, I think it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy that Roach is quite sensitive, immediately dislikes Laura's vibe. And then she starts noticing little details like her tattoos, her the scar where her lip ring used to be. She, she has a little peek in her handbag and sees that she has a true crime book in there. So like, I think Roach immediately starts off by being quite standoffish and then realizes, oh my God, actually, this is a potential friend. This is someone that interests me. As soon as Roach leans in, Laura leans out. But from at the very beginning, Laura's just kind of indifferent towards her. She doesn't really pay her much attention at all. Um, and I think that that in itself is quite hurtful to Rach. I think Rach is quite sensitive. I think she's experienced a lot of rejection in her life. And that immediate, clear uh, dismissal, I think, is really what kind of triggers the very first kind of inklings of obsession. Yeah. And then that takes us all the way to the end, which... <laughs> what an ending. Oh, I'm not, not going to spoil... Yeah, I'm not going to spoil anything, but, uh, but what an ending. I imagine you were the kind of smile on your face writing the very last sentences of this book <laughs> you know what I never plan my books um I don't really plan at all I just write and vibe and then edit um but I knew exactly how I wanted it to end so a lot of the challenges for me was to figure out how to get the characters into a position where that ending would be plausible mm. yeah but we can't uh, say anymore no we, can, we <laughs> no, you have to read it it is <laughs> It's a great ending. Um, it's kind Thank of. Thank you. I, I think I think it's quite blackly comic. The ending to this book. Thank you. So yeah. Well, talk about endings. Right, endings of stories. Like, let's talk about the current position that your own story is in. How's how's that for a segue? Because now, after years of working as a bookseller, you are going around the country doing readings and book signing events. Um, sometimes in shops you've previously worked in. 
I believe you're in yeah. Manchester a few nights ago. That must be a massive thrill. It's a very cool feeling. It's a very cool feeling, especially being in the Manchester Deansgate store. That was my first book selling gig. I just fresh out of uni. I went to uni. I was at MMU, but I studied in the in the crew campus. So I moved to Manchester to go somewhere a bit vibier and ended up, you know, selling books for six months or whatever. And it's very surreal, like walking on the same carpets that that little, you know, that little 22 year old had walked across yeah. with no idea where she was going to go or how long it would take her to get there. It's a really nice feeling. Yeah. It feels really lucky. When were you there? Uh, so that would be two. Yeah, it was two thousand Christmas 2009 at Deansgate. Right. I think I, I joined in like the October or November, maybe. Um, and then left by the January. So very, very brief. And I was working in Manchester that at that time. Just to explain to my listeners, like, this is my, essentially my local bookshop. I might have served you. We've definitely just kind of crossed paths anyway. I mean, is, yeah. it, is it still the biggest bookshop in the UK? It's the biggest bookshop in the North. Right. I think Piccadilly in London is the biggest bookshop in the UK. Okay. Well, but I'm prepared even, to be corrected on that if I'm wrong. Even though it's part of a sort of corporate franchise there's still something deeply special about the Manchester Deansgate Waterstones I think it's a great shop it's because it really is massive you can get really lost in it I can't believe you were there like two nights ago I didn't if I'd known I would have come down and like said hello and watched you read but I just I found out oh the day shit after. man yeah what is what it is and it's what it is yeah um, like ships in the night my aim I'm saying this for the first time I live in a tiny village in the north in a little um, and it's my little village is kind of it's a tiny bit hipster it's kind of like if South Manchester Didsbury hit kind of place was part mining village you know it's a real it's a real conflation of two kind of worlds and two histories and stuff and it's crying out for a bookshop and I'm genuinely starting to think about do I just open one? Oh my god do it yeah imagine the people I could, get, I could get to come and do readings and stuff it'd be amazing so, I'd be there I'd be yeah, there like oh, a shop indeed. Yeah, I mean, hint, hint. Yeah. I was, I mean, that, looked, that was a very, very loaded hint. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, if I do it, oh, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, right, to finish off, I can't think of anyone better to ask this question to, but do you have a recommendation for my listeners? Yeah, I do. I, I figured, you know what? I'm coming onto a, a horror podcast, so I'm going to recommend the most unhinged book I've ever read. <laughs> have you heard of The Sluts by Dennis Cooper? I've heard of, but never read it. I tell you what, I read it this year. So it's it, it was written in 2001, I think. Um, and it's all set on a message board in which men gather online to rate and review um, escorts. And they all get really obsessed with this one sex worker called Brad. And Brad will like do anything. He'll fulfill any fantasy. And they all go kind of wild for him. But slowly, as the reviews become more unhinged, you begin to question whether or not every poster is telling the truth, whether they're all seeing the same sex worker and whether or not Brad even exists. It is so much. It is very violent. It is very compelling. I read it very quickly and felt absolutely destroyed by it. So that's my unhinged recommendation. That, Take it or leave it. <laughs> I've, I've always seen it on lists of like most shocking books, but never actually heard the synopsis. So that sounds fantastic. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll add that to the to the list of my ever burgeoning list of books to read from this show. Um, I'll add it to that. Um, and to come back at you, just off based on that, a book that if you like that, you may you may enjoy. Have you heard of Eric LaRocca's Things Have Gotten Worse Since We Last Spoke? 
Yes, I have. I read that um, maybe a year or two ago. Right. Does that... Very uh, similar. Yeah, it sounds like there's some some kind of shared vibe there. Yeah, I I love an internet book, man. Like, (laughs) especially an internet from yesteryear. Mm. You know, they're like very kind of time capsule-esque. Yeah. And I love this idea of like how we can manipulate people without even being in the same room. Yeah. Yeah, God, that book that book did things to me. I remember reading it in the bath and the bit with the little Christ. I was like, oh, God. Um, <laughs> it's yeah. so gross. Yeah, can't get clean enough. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, as a slight addendum just for this show, because I think you're in a good position to answer this, um, I always ask for book recommendations, but you mention a lot of podcasts in Death of a Bookseller. Um, and I know you've probably listened to loads. You overdosed on them for to write the book. Um, because it's... It's an overcrowded marketplace and there's a lot of shows that aren't great and some that are. Can you perhaps recommend one or two true crime podcasts for my listeners? Yeah, a podcast recommendation. This is quite old school, so it may be something that everyone has already listened to, but I only listened to Radio Rental recently. Have you ever heard of that one? I've not heard of it, no. So it has a very like hammy framing. Okay. Um, so it's it's telling supposedly true stories. Um like listeners' true stories are like very unsettling, very unheimlich. Um, I know I've heard apparently the later seasons are quite different, but the first season, each story, it's two per episode. They are incredibly weird. But the one that genuinely frightened me to my very core is episode four of Radio, Radio Rental called Laura of the Woods. It frightened me to death. So that's my recommendation. Okay. Okay. Is that about a true crime-ish thing yeah it's about a young boy who makes a new friend he meets this he meets someone in the forest and it it i'm actually i have goosebumps on my arm just thinking about it i'm probably overegging it now but yeah series one of radio radio rental it's all good but episode four is my fav amazing i've just literally added that to my like iTunes thing as we're talking okay. because I'll message me and let me know what you incredible. think right yeah I'm always looking for a new podcast to listen to um Good. have you ever listened to all killer no filler no I haven't I have heard of it do you think I'd like it I felt like Roach right when reading the book because I was want, want to become your best friend and tell you all these things <laughs> and be like oh we have so much in common let's talk you know I was like back off Neil you're being weird <laughs> all killer no filler I think maybe the thing that perhaps saves your true crime interest essentially it's two northern comedians kerry pritchard mclean who is now like quite famous um and uh, rachel fairburn they're like recording in north manchester and every week they talk about a different famous serial killer but they do it both from a very very unglamorizing perspective they focus on the victims and they absolutely kick the shit out of kind of like like just men basically it's so yeah. funny. It's that so funny. That sounds great. I'll give it a go. Yeah. Thank and it's, you. It's, it's killer and filler spelt double L-A. And they do live shows. Honestly, I just I just kept thinking of you all the way. I kept thinking of it all the way through your book. It's so funny. Yeah. Oh, bang um, it. I'm going to give it a listen. Thank you. Cool. And, and my last question, right? What truly scares you, Alice? Oh, you know, I've been really thinking about this because I was shown this one question in advance. I've been thinking about mm-hmm. it a lot. And it sounds like a ridiculous thing for a 36-year-old woman to say, but I'm scared of the dark. I really don't like the dark because I'm really frightened about what I might 
find mm. in there. Um, I don't sleep with a nightlight. It's not like that. But I really struggle with dark spaces. I really, I like, you know, I, I'm the kind of person that I can't bear to get out of bed at night to go to the loo. I have to really psych myself up for it. I have to turn a light on, even if my husband's asleep. There's something, I think, very creepy about thinking about the possibilities. Even though I don't believe in ghosts, I'm still really scared of them. And I feel yeah. like the dark really brings that out in me. Wow. It's amazing, actually, how I've had quite a few like hardcore horror novelists say they're scared of the dark. So you are in good company. Just an overactive imagination, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's a curse. Yeah, it's, the void to fill. It's human nature, and it. We're all, you know, we're supposed to be scared of the dark, I suppose. But um, can I finish by giving you one more recommendation that may ruin your life? Please. Um, if you are the kind of person who gets nervous getting up in the night to go to the bathroom, then do and don't read a book called Echo by Thomas Ulder Hervelt. You know, he wrote Hex. Oh, yeah, okay. I haven't heard of Echo. So it's a, it's a book about mountain. It's a horror about mountaineering. Um, but it starts with easily the most frightening scene I read last year. Uh, and it's all about going to the bathroom in the dark. And it will oh ruin your sleep for at least a week. Okay, I'm already so excited because I feel like mountaineering, mm -hmm. that immediately makes me think of the movie The Descent. Right. And Thin Air, Michelle Paver that ghost story. Yeah. Just mountaineering is already terrifying. Like you almost forget that there's going to be a further horror element to those things. Right. Cause I'm really, really freaked out at the thought of climbing. Yeah. It, it just sounds dangerous to me. I don't well, know. Give echo a read and just don't blame me. Okay. All right. Cool. Okay. Right. Well, thank you for your time. Cause I know, as I said at the start, you're really busy. Um, death of a bookseller is out now, I think, pretty much everywhere. You can get your hands on books. Um, I read it in 48 hours, as I keep saying, and I just think it's a really, really wonderful character study. Um, it's not necessarily the book you think it is when you first pick it up. And if anyone who likes books, as anyone who listens to this show does, I think they'll get a lot from it in that regard as well. I hope it does. I hope it continues to do fantastically because I loved it. And, and Alice Slater, thanks for talking scared. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. I really did feel like Roach when I was reading this book. Not in a sympathetic or associative way. No, she's terrifying. But in the sense that I wanted to just scream through the internet to Alice. You get where I'm coming from. We like the same things. Do you ever get that from books or actually more often from podcasts? The sense that the person on the other end of the page or the microphone is a friend you just haven't met yet. Yeah, saying that out loud makes it sound a little bit creepy. But, well, thankfully I refrained from subjecting Alice to my sort of aggressive bonding over true crime podcasts. Um, but if you do like morbid stuff and podcasts and considering the time you've given me... I can only assume you do. Well, Death of a Bookseller may be a richly satisfying experience for you. It's horrid rather than horror, I would say. I quite like that, that distinction. I might use that in future. I'd compare it to that rash of interpersonal paranoia movies from the early 90s. Things like Fatal Attraction or The Hand That Rocks the Cradle or, most of all, Single White Female. I haven't thought about at least two of those films in decades now. But yeah, they make for a good comparison. 
Though Alice's book is much less schlocky and much more psychologically acute and mature, and it doesn't feature Michael Douglas's arse. As slimy mollusks go, I think I'd rather have Bleak the Snail. Anyway, this was a great chance to talk about both podcasts and about books, and I want to turn two questions over to you. First of all, where do you stand on the whole books as artefacts debate? I think I might have come across a little bit too harsh on that one. I really don't have any opinions on how you like to keep your books, pristine or otherwise. If they are objects of value to you, great. On the whole, I just don't think that way. But I didn't mean to sound quite so snooty about it. Quite the opposite, actually. But do tell me about your bookkeeping habits in, in terms of how you treat your novels. Not a tip for the 330 entry, obviously. How do you look after them? Do they matter to you as objects or are you all about the story? And second, throw me your creepy, mysterious, true crime, etc. podcasts. The more eerie, the better. I'm a massive fan of Last Podcast on the Left, though it took me a while to realise the extreme crassness wasn't actually laughing at victims. I love it, but I've exhausted it now and I need a new fix. I'm not really interested in detailed accounts of losers killing women. Tell me about the weirder side of stuff. And I'd also like to reiterate my own recommendation of All Killer, No Filler, because it's a great, hilarious corrective to a lot of the stuff that Alice pointed out as a problematic feature of true crime. Definitely give that a listen. And remember, it's Killer and Filler spelled with an A. But what are your recommendations? What should I listen to? I need to go listen to that episode of Radio Rental that Alice mentioned, actually. If you've got any thoughts on any of that, you can get in touch via email at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com or on Twitter, Instagram or TikTok at talkscaredpod. And if we're talking about recommending podcasts, then maybe start with yours truly. Leave a review wherever you can, whenever you can, if you can, please do, because it makes a huge difference to exposure and to my heart. And to mention again, the patrons there if you want more Talking Scared. It's at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. Okay, somehow, madly, we're into the middle of May. That's a crazy passage of time. It was Christmas like five minutes ago. But on we go. And speaking of crazy time, that's one of the many high concepts covered in next week's episode when I'm joined by another fellow Brit, Nicholas Binge, to talk about his smash hit, Ascension. It's a prime slice of sci-fi horror, part Annihilation, part Lovecraft's Mountains of Madness, part Victorian Adventure Story. Great chat. We even cover quantum physics. But until then, fold your pages, crack your spines, and be kind to shop assistants. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.